Good morning. Uh, it's my privilege uh, to lead such a great congregation, a lot of friends, and a lot of folks that really care for one another. To lead us in prayer today, I ask that you'll um, pray with us. But even more than that, I'm very grateful that the Holy Spirit is going to edit this prayer. So I have all confidence that uh, he'll straighten it out. Um, well, we're, th uh, we're thankful for this morning that uh, your forgiveness of us is like the dew every morning and the, like the dew that was on the ground this morning. And it just reminds us of how we need that on a daily, if not minute-by-minute -minute basis. Um, I pray um, that our hearts would be softened toward others and toward the world. I pray that we would be a church that is kingdom-minded and not focused on this world, which, is, which appears so good, but that we would focus on you and what you want us to do and how you want us to suffer and how you want us to sacrifice. I pray that we would just relax, that we're not in a race to prove that we're better than somebody else, but we are loved and we are our daughters and sons of the King Jesus. I pray that um, we would know that God loves us and that he is in control. That we would understand and welcome godly suffering. That we would look to the Lord Jesus Christ as our example. I, Father, I thank you so much for our staff, each and every one of them, those who shepherd and care for the flock, those who cook our great meals, those who clean and set up all the rooms, everyone here, they are truly your servants and they are a blessing to us. We pray for them. We also pray for Sanford RUF, Beth, excuse me, Ben and Rebecca Griffith and Maggie Alden. And just ask that on that campus, your word would go forth and that RUF would be a part of that. Father, we also want to lift up David and uh, Catherine Driscoll as they face uncertainty with Catherine's pregnancy. We pray for, uh, for your healing, Father. But most of all, we pray that David and Catherine would know you're at the deepest level of your love for them and for their unborn child, that you would guide them, comfort them, and give them wisdom. Father, we pray for all that are hurting, mentally and physically, that you would comfort them, remind us of our glorious future at the feet of Jesus. Father, I also want to pray for Josh as he gives us the closing sermon on uh, 1 Peter. I pray that you would uh, open our ears and humble our hearts and that, you, that he would speak the words that you would give him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. It's a joy to greet you all in the name of the Lord Jesus, to be here to preach and share in God's word together. Um, so we've come to the end of our study in 1 Peter. This is, as Charlie just mentioned, the very last sermon you will hear this summer from 1 Peter. 
Um, We've made it also to just about the end of summer. I know for a lot of you, um, kids in the room and parents, school is going to be starting this week or in the coming weeks, and some of you are ready. Probably if you're 18 and over, you're ready. Uh, If you've got kids, if you don't, um, if you're the little kids, you're probably wanting more dog days of summer. But how many of you had some summer reading? I'm looking out at the room for kids. Anybody had some summer reading? We had a few folks. So at the end of your summer reading, right, um, you get to the end and you get back into school and all of your teachers, they want you to do what? They want you to give kind of a, a book report, right, or a summary of the reading that you did. And if your teacher were to ask you to give you a one-sentence summary of the book you were supposed to read this summer, what would you say? Well, if you were like me, you had plenty of words to say. Maybe they related to the book you didn't read, but you would say something. Well, here in the the very end of 1 Peter, Peter gives us the summary of the entire book, the entire letter in one sentence. And I want you to imagine that you were there hearing it read for the first time. Probably Silas, that we're going to talk about here in just a moment, Silas is there and he's reading it out loud, maybe pausing at moments to expand on it, to expound some of what's in it. And then you get to the very end of the letter, and if you're hearing it read, your ear, you're probably, it's just reverberating these truths, and maybe your favorite part is just ringing in your brain. These themes that had crept up time and time again in the past 15 or so minutes that it takes to read this letter in one sitting are ringing in your ears, and you're probably struggling to, to get it all down into one sentence because there's so much gold But here it is. This is what he does. He summarizes it in this sentence, and you'll see it there in your worship guide. This, meaning the letter, is the true grace of God. Everything that we've heard and thought about this summer, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That's the summary of the letter, and across the whole entire letter, he's been trying to accomplish two major goals. The first is he through this letter is attempting to help transform believers' understanding of who they are. You see, with the advent of Jesus, with his resurrection and faith in him, everything has changed. So he's trying to help transform how it is that believers understand themselves, who they are. And then the second goal is to provide some direction on how believers now with a renewed, transformed understanding ought to live. How is it that these believers ought to live in a hostile world? And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Before we do that, let's pray, and then we'll get into God's Word. Almighty God, we come before you this morning asking for your help. A lot of us are tired, a little weary, heavy laden, various stressors in our lives, And we've brought them in here because this is where you ask us to come. You say to cast all our anxieties on you because you care for us, so we're going to do it. Holy Spirit, help us. Help us to hear your word. And more than that, please stir our hearts to believe it and to trust in Jesus, to cling to him with more affection, knowing that it's he who holds us fast in his hands. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. 
All right, we're going to read. I, we, I've included a few extra verses, but we're just going to read starting chapter 5, verse 12, our text for this morning. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. So these are the two goals that Peter's trying to accomplish to try to help us understand the contours of God's grace and how that reshapes who we are. And then secondly, to give some direction on how we ought to live, how it is that we're to stand firm in the grace that God has given to us and has shown to us. And so let's take them in order. Here's the first thing. I want us to understand the contours of the true grace of God and how it reshapes how we understand ourselves. Okay, so first things first. I want you to take your pen. You have a pen or a pencil? Okay, I want you to take your pen and with your Bible, you can do it in your worship guide if you don't have a Bible, but if you have your Bible, you have my permission to take your pen and I want you to circle two words, the very last words of the letter, in Christ. I want you to circle them, underline it, stars all around it, okay? Kids, you can do this too in your worship guide, circle in Christ and underline it with stars. If you want to understand... Friends, if you want to understand the true grace of God toward you and for you, then we have to understand these two words, in Christ. You see, with the advent of Jesus, his life of perfect obedience, his death on the cross bearing the weight of the sin of his people and the wrath of God on that sin, his resurrection from the grave three days later and his vindication as the true king who has redeemed his people and is saving them and will fully save them in the end. Because that is true, all those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ are now in Christ. It's not some kind of ethereal concept. It is a firm reality in your life. If you believe in Jesus, you are in Christ. That is what defines you and is what is the tagline of your new creation life. You are in Christ. From the very beginning of the letter, this is what Peter has been trying to help believers who are living in a hostile world understand, to, to, to reclaim and to stand firm in that fact that they are in Christ. You see, at the beginning of the letter, he points them to the foundation of the world and the work of the triune God on behalf of his people. You see it in verse 2 that we printed for you in the worship guide. That according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, meaning from the foundation of the world, before all things were created, he knew you. According to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit, right now in real time as he applies faith to you and the benefits of the covenant to your life, 
for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood because you belong to him. He has reclaimed you at the price of his own blood. You are in Christ. Blessed be, he continues, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because according to his great mercy, he has caused you to be what? Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The thing that marks you out is the fact that you are no longer an individual. You are now in Christ. You are united body and soul to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You are in Him. He has won you and claimed you as His own. This is no longer, you are no longer considered on your individual status. From now on, Peter wants you to know that you are considered by God through the lens of the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, you're a sinner like me, You still struggle with your sinful nature, but you've been redeemed. And now God looks at you through the lens of his son who has lived perfect, obedient life for you, who died the death that you deserved. And so that is how you are seen in the eyes of God, the father in Christ. He sees you as a son. He sees you as a daughter and he has deep love and affection for you because you belong to his only son. And I fear if you're anything like me, that this has kind of lost its luster. We know that we're Christians. We know that we're saved. Um, We know that we ought to live differently. But are we daily astonished by the fact that our whole life is subsumed in the reality that we are in Christ? That everything about us is in Christ? Every breath that we take, every move that we make in the world, all the things that we are meant to do, that he's given us to do, our work, all of it is in Christ. That's been a challenge for me all week as I think about my own life. What, do I, am I daily astonished by my standing in Christ? That God's mercy for me has been so great that he would claim me as his own in Christ. This is what we are called to live with at the forefront of our brain. This is the contour of the true grace of God. You are in Christ now and forevermore. Now we could end the sermon there because that was good. That is really good truth. There's more. Peter has more to tell us. How is it that that truth in Christ reshapes how we see ourselves, how we understand who we are in the world? Well, there's two ways. And the first is a thread that he's been pulling all across the whole letter. And you see it in verse 13. He says this, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Now, when you see Babylon, if you've been anywhere around the church or if you've read in the Old Testament, that would immediately take your mind to the the old covenant people of Israel who were exiled out of Israel who were led away by the Babylonian empire into exile. They were taken to Babylon and they were there for 70 years or so in exile. Peter is trying to help us understand that our new life in Christ, our born again status in Christ means that we are now in a totally different place. We are now elect exiles of God, even in the place where we live. 
the very beginning of the letter, he says, to you who are what? Elect exiles dispersed across all of these areas in Asia Minor. The church in Babylon, the church in Rome, also chosen with you, elect with you, sends you greetings. Every believer in Christ, united to him by faith across the entire world are now exiles, pilgrims on a journey, and they're not home yet. And so two things are true. One, you've been chosen from the foundation of the world to belong in Christ. You are chosen and beloved, but also you're not home yet. And, I, and for me, this is a really tough, a tough tension because in our affluent situation here in Birmingham, many of you maybe come from other parts of the country, but I think it's still similar. That's really hard for us to understand because this definitely feels like home. In fact, we've worked really hard to make it feel that way. The way in which we built our home, the way in which we built our friend group, the way in which we live ultimately is trying to create very comfortable home. It's a good longing. It's a good desire to have a feeling of home, but we have to be able to live in the tension knowing that this isn't it. We're not home yet. Peter wants to encourage believers who are less and less at home in the world, in the city in which they've been born, in the city where they've lived their whole life, in the families that they have, in the work that they've done, that, yeah, that tension is real because you no longer belong to yourself. You belong to a totally different country. You're a citizen of heaven now, and so you're in exile. You're on a pilgrimage, wandering, waiting until you make it home. And we have to ask ourselves the question, does, does foreignness, our, our, our foreign status, does that mark us out or doesn't it? See, if you're anything like me, that makes you feel kind of weird, especially if you're young people. Ask, ask our young people, our middle schoolers and high schoolers, what that tension feels like. They probably feel it very deeply. To belong to Jesus, but then also to desperately seek belonging in the place where they are, knowing that there's an inherent tension and to belong where they are necessitates, that's a tough word, necessitates a giving up of values and principles. Does foreignness define who you are or is our Christianity kind of in blind conformity to the cultural norms around us? You see, I was reading, um, and one one scholar noted this in their commentary, that as our culture kind of accepts values and starts to legalize principles that are at odds with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are going to be more and more foreign, even in the place where we were born and grew up and raised our family. That this place is going to start to look and feel like a totally different place. And I bet if I had conversations with some of our older saints in the congregation, they could absolutely tell you that is happening. That the change across the decades has been enormous. And that's a scary change. And that's why Peter is such an encouraging letter for us because it says, though that is true and there's always constant change, you're constantly being berated by alternate stories. Your status in Christ as an elect, chosen, beloved exile does not change. You are firm in that status. 
And so I want to invite you as parents, as individuals, as children, I want you to think about this. How is it that I can re-examine my own acceptance of what's normal in culture? What areas of my life actually could not be distinguished from people who don't believe in Jesus? And do I need to maybe make some changes? Do I need to make some changes in the things that I do, what I watch, how I participate in in the broader culture? Do I need to actually look like an exile, a foreigner, a stranger? So Peter says, yes, you're going to be very strange and a foreigner in your place, even in a place where you've grown up your entire life. But that's not the only thing. There's the flip side of the coin of encouragement, and this is it. Being in Christ, true grace reshapes who we are. It reminds us that we're exiles chosen by God, but also that we're part of a new family. You have to understand, we must understand that we belong to a new family. We belong to the family of God. Jesus Christ has won us to himself, and because we're in Christ, we're part of the family. God is our father, Jesus is our brother, and we are united to him by the power of the Spirit. And we're united to one another. Look at verses 12 and 13 and 14. Just at the language that Peter uses and reminds us of. He says, by Silvanus or Silas, a faithful brother. This word that he's used a few times in the letter letter, talking about brotherly love or talking about the brotherhood across the world. Our faithful brother as I regard him. And this church who's in Babylon chosen with you that you belong to, also sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. And then he says, to greet one another with the kiss of love. This is amazing because just those two names that you see, Silas and Mark, kind of encapsulate what it means to belong to a family of God. So this is most likely Silas that we learn about in Acts. If you remember, Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey And they took along John Mark. That John Mark is most likely the Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. And so Mark was with them. And then he departed at a certain time. And then once Paul and Barnabas came back, they they separated. And Paul invited Silas to go along with him on his next missionary journey. And Barnabas went with Mark. And so it was that Paul and Silas were together. And they were establishing churches. And Silas was with Paul in Asia Minor in some of these places, and he was with Paul when he was in Rome. And now amazingly, Paul or Silas is here with Peter in Rome. So just imagine it. Peter, close disciple of Jesus. Paul, Damascus Road, sees the risen and vindicated king. On mission with Silas, together, and Mark, who wrote Mark's gospel, and Luke, who's mentioned together with them in other places, all together on mission as a family. Unrelated people, by blood, but together, uh, family of God, on mission. It's unbelievable. And not only that, but I love this line. Paul uses something similar, you know, greet one another with a holy kiss. You guys remember that? Greet one another here with the kiss of love. I joked earlier that I was going to invite someone up so that we could demonstrate what that was supposed to look like, but I'll refrain. And instead, I'll just tell you. Most likely, this is a phrase that, it was a familial greeting. 
See, in the, public, in the public sphere, the way in which people greeted each other was, was much more formal. It was similar for us today, you know, a handshake or a nod or post, post-pandemic, a fist bump, <clears throat> or the awkward wave. Um, there's lots of different, you remember the memes of how you could greet people. Um, that's how you did it in public. But in the home, it was way different. In the home, there was a familial greeting. It was a way of, of welcoming someone that belonged to you. It wasn't just someone that you knew, it was someone that belonged there. And there was a greeting, this familial greeting, this kiss of love. And what Peter is communicating to the church, people who both are family and who are not family, is saying, hey, when you're together, you're family. When you're together, greet one another with the deep affection that Jesus has shown each one of you. See, there's a great temptation for us. It's to think that in here, Yes, we, 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 you know, we go to the same church and we're members, but actually my closest people are outside of here. And that's a temptation for us. And what Peter is encouraging us to know is like in this room, in the gathering of the saints, you couldn't be more close to these people. That in here we're family and out there we're exiles and strangers meant to be calling and inviting and grabbing people to come into the family gathering. Another temptation for us, especially in the South, is to confuse friendliness with love. Now, I haven't experienced this much at Covenant Pres because I think we know the difference. But it's true in our culture. You see, friendliness is a warm greeting and we welcome people in and we show them a seat. And the temptation is to think that that's love. So stop there. Now that they're in, we can stop. I want to encourage us together to go into the next phase. Take friendliness, invite them in, and then go to the next phase of greeting them with the kiss of love to welcome them into the family of God. To help them to know that they belong because, yes, they're strangers, but in here, they belong to us and to God. We actually show up when people are suffering or have had a surgery or are dealing with a health issue. We show up when someone's lost a loved one. We show up when someone, a mom is at her wits end with her kids and just needs someone to listen and pray. We show up when one of our single adults is struggling under the weight of of hopeful expectations that haven't been met. We welcome and invite them in and say, here you belong. This is for you because we're family. There's a bond that holds us together. And I was in Chattanooga this week and I saw this, this thing pictured for me at the Tennessee Aquarium. I haven't been to the Tennessee Aquarium in a long time. Has anybody been? A few people? Okay. I love this place. It is so awesome. Um, There's two sides. There's a salt water and a fresh water. We went to the salt water side first, knowing that it was, it's probably the better side, and the kids would melt down later, which they did. So we went to the salt water side first to really, really take it in. And one exhibit caught my eye. And it, we're, in this, we're in this place, and I walk up to the, to the glass, which, I mean, a, a, a tangential side note, any engineers in the room, how they figure out the pressure for all the water that are in those tanks is amazing, and how thick the glass has to be. I'm just saying, y'all are amazing. So we're walk up to this glass, and right there is an enormous red octopus just stuck to the glass. Has anybody really ever examined the bottom side of an octopus? Okay, you can't see its head. All you see is this sprawling thing with eight tentacles. I counted. There are eight on an octopus. 
And on the bottom of each tentacle are just all these suction cups. They're like hundreds of them spread out all over the tentacles of this thing. And I was like, Liz, that's the church. I'm like seeing the church. And all of a sudden the, the octopus wanted to move. And instead of just like removing itself from the glass, it kind of like did this wave thing where the suction cups would kind of come off and then back on in this wave. It was unbelievable. And I was like, that's the church. Right now, Peter says, though you do not see Jesus, your head, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible. We can't see the head, but as individual particular churches in our place, individual suction cups, we have work to do. We belong to each other, but we're united across the lands, across as far as the east is from the west. We know God's people are in every place. There are churches in China meeting today underground and we're bonded to them with such deep bonds that they're family. There are tiny churches and villages that are just now getting God's word in their language, meeting, maybe 10, 15 people meeting to celebrate the risen King Jesus. And we belong to them and they to us. And there are big churches in South America and in Africa who are meeting today, who are worshiping God and dancing and singing his praises like we are, I hope, because we belong. Each individual church, big, some big, some small, all moving in tandem on mission. It's a beautiful thing to belong to the family of God. And that's what Peter's wanting to remind you in the close of his letter. Yes, you're a stranger in a foreign place. Even in the place of your birth where you grew up, you're a stranger now. But though you're a stranger when you're dispersed, when you're gathered, you're at home with family. This is where you belong. And when the church together moves in a beautiful way, it's powerful. And it really is an invitation to mission. And that leads us to the last thing I want to leave with you. Peter says, this is God's grace. In Christ, yes, you're an elect exile, but you're family of God. That's who you are. And now how is it that you live? Well, you're to stand firm in that grace. Here's how we do that. He actually helps us. In verse 9 of chapter 5, he tells us, he uses the same word. And you can, you can see it if you have your Bible. He says this, talking about the devil, the roaring lion, he says, resist him, firm in your faith. Really, that's the word stand, stand against him. It's the same word that he uses in our passage. And so the first way in which we're to stand firm in God's grace is we're to stand together as God's people, plural, against the evil one. Now, here's what that doesn't mean. See, there's a temptation for us in the West, particularly in America. I feel it. I know many of you do. We have a, a deep temptation to want to stand up for ourselves, stand up for our rights. We're feeling the, the society and the prevailing culture kind of coming against Christianity, this bulwark, and we're starting to see and feel that Christianity in, in America is starting to kind of dwindle and lose its cultural affluence and power. And so our, 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 our desire is to stand against that and to really to stand against it online and to find ways in which we can, can fight for our rights. I want to encourage you, I don't think that that's what Peter is talking about. I don't think that that's the way that he's encouraging the church to stand against the culture that's coming against them. He says to resist 
the evil one firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your family across the world. Instead, what he is calling us to do is to lay down our lives like Jesus. Remember Jesus who emptied himself of all of his rights and privileges, took the form of a servant? That's how we stand against the evil one. See, a lot of us are much quicker to stand against some kind of cultural oppression, but we're not as willing to stand against division in our own church by folks who have slipped into slander and gossip. We're not as quick to stand against people within our own Sunday school community who are at odds with one another. We're not as willing to stand against the sin in my own heart that's sowing discord within the family of God. That's what Peter's encouraging. To stand firm in God's grace is to stand against the enemy's desire to sow discord in the church, to erase our feeling of family, to make us feel like we're at home in this place. That's what we stand against. We remind ourselves and each other over and over and over again, this is who I am. I belong to God's family. And yes, I'm I'm on pilgrimage. I'm a pilgrim in this place and I'm on my way home and I'm together with these people. And so we stand against the evil one and then we, secondly, we act as stewards of God's grace. This is the last thing. This is how you stand in God's grace. You act as a steward. Earlier in the letter, Peter says, We are stewards of God's very grace. Some are given words of exhortation. Some are given acts of service. Whatever it is, it's all for God's glory. And so I want to remind you, I want to encourage you. How is it that you stand firm in grace? I want you to consider how is it that I'm being called to steward God's grace towards my family, both the family that I live with and the family that I'm gathered with. How do I steward what God has given me for their benefit and not my own? Where are areas of our gathering that desperately need service? Where are areas where where bodies are needed to care for the life of the church? Where am I particularly passionate and gifted? And where can I enter in to serve and to teach and to speak and to say what's true about who we are? Peter said, I exhorted and I declared, really the word means I'm bearing testimony. My life is showing that this is true. It's dependable and reliable because it's God's grace. We are pilgrim stewards of God's varied grace while we're here. In a moment, we'll be gone. Some of us sooner than others until the Lord comes back. And so while we're here journeying, he's calling and inviting us to act as stewards of his grace to one another, to welcome those who don't belong yet and invite them in to belong, to tell them of all the benefits and blessings of being in Christ. So the only thing I want to ask you and leave you with is this, do you believe that? Do you believe that you are in Christ? Do you believe that you're a steward of his grace? And do you believe that you've been called to act as a pilgrim steward? And then ask yourselves, how can I do it? And if you're looking for opportunities, you can ask one of the pastors, one of the staff, ask someone in your Sunday school class, where are you serving? Where can, I, where can we do it together? 
and then jump in and see what the Lord might do. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word and we ask that you would strengthen us now as we come to your table. You're very, very gracious to us. And Lord, we are pilgrims. We're journeying and we week by week come for sustaining grace. And we find it here in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Help us to know our unity as the family of God and to feel deeply our bond with all of our family across the world. Many who are suffering, many who are under oppression, all of us together, one body. We thank you for this meal and we pray that you would bless us through it in Jesus' name, amen.